is good to be in God's house and has been a busy weekend. We were at um, Collierville and I'm at Collierville at Olive Branch and um, very much enjoyed the meeting there and thankful for all who were able to come Friday night. Um, and you're going to get a little bit of a repeat at the beginning of this message if you were there Friday night. But we're going to move on into um, the, what I preached on Saturday as well. That's the other thing I would ask prayers on. It's, it's always challenging to take two full messages and you put them together. So that, that could end up at two hours, but I, I don't think we will. I think we'll be able to, to cover and, and see the, the big concepts of this uh, within one message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We're going to set the stage for the first half uh, of this message. And the title is Ruin and Redemption. Ruin and Redemption. And we're going to begin in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And there we read, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It's a sad verse. Uh, it talks about the fall of man and that by one man sin entered into the world. And to understand uh, this concept, we really have to go all the way back to the beginning. We have to go back to when this actually took place. So when we say ruin, what we mean by that is that uh, mankind has fallen into sin. And we live in a fallen world. This world, uh, that's not a hard concept for us to understand, is it? I think that's easy to preach on because people do understand that this is a fallen world. We can turn on the news for just a few minutes and we see fallenness. Uh, we can go to work every day. We can see fallenness. And here's the hard part. We can also look in the mirror every day and we can see fallenness. We can see that we are fallen creatures. We are sinners. We not only have a sin nature, but we also act upon that. Uh, too many times and, and actively sin against God's law. So we're a fallen creation. We are fallen creatures. So we're going to go back to Genesis. And in the, the book of Genesis, go all the way back to um, Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of all things. And Genesis chapter 2, there's adding to that. But in, in Genesis 1... 131, after God had created man, he said these words. He said, it is good. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God made man good. I think um, that's something that, honestly, I don't think about a whole lot. Because of the fall happened you know, pretty quickly after that, I, it, it, it kind of has slipped my mind for God created man good. And when he created man, he said it was good. God did not create him a sinner. But in his original state, the man was, had the ability to fall. So he was not a sinner, but he was mutable. He had the ability to change. And so at, at that, we see in, in Genesis 1, God said everything was good. In Genesis 2, God provided everything that man needed to make his life full and happy. Now, and the reason I include that, that's very important. Because what Satan's actually going to do is he's going to say, you know, that's the part that's not true. <laughs> he's going to say that, you know, yeah, God created, and it, but, but there's more. There's more that you don't have. There's more that, that you could get to. And so really Genesis 2 is important because God provided everything that man needed to make his life full and happy. He was bountiful in his creation not begrudging there was not there wasn't anything that was good for adam that he was holding back and and satan uses that so much for us too doesn't he? he he tells us there's something more out there that really would add to your life when really that's not the case at all so then we get to genesis chapter 3 and we're going to pick up reading here in genesis chapter 3 in verse 1 now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. 
And the woman, there's a, there's a question we've been talking about today. Uh, and the, the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So there's a lie. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So I'm going to pause here, because this is a moment of great import. <laughs> okay? What happens here, Satan comes and he says, Well, God told you this, but really... What it really is, God's holding something back from you. There's, there's something more. You can be more than what you are. You can be like a God. And that's why God doesn't want you to do that because he's, he's holding this back from you. And so it's at this point, every time I read this passage, that you just want to yell out and say, stop, run away. I mean, this is a big moment, right? Um, Earth is new, creation is new, everything is good. And we, we, wouldn't we want to go back to that? Wouldn't we love to go back prior to this moment that we're about to read about? And we want to say, stop, run away, don't do it, don't do it. But then we read in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, so much to unpack there, but this is a, just a catastrophic moment of rebellion and disobedience. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their innocence vanished immediately. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. Verse 3, 7, and, and just to make the magnitude of what happened just really jump out at us, let's look at what happened right after this. So in Genesis 4, um, the curse of God falls on them after this, and their first child is a murderer and a fugitive. The, the Lamech, um, all that happens to him in Genesis 4, the increase of wickedness everywhere until eventually... A flood dooms the whole world. That's, that's pretty fast, isn't it? That's amazing. That when, We went from God saying that creation is very good, and in eight chapters, he had to destroy it all and, and start over with Noah and his family. Isn't that amazing how quickly that things changed? So this was a moment of great import. And uh, Adam then, as a representative of the entire human race, we need to understand this as well. Uh, it, it's, it's in our text, but we have to kind of read between the lines. Adam, when Adam ate of that fruit, he did that willingly. So um, Eve was deceived, but then Adam, as a representative of the entire human race, he willfully sinned against God. That day, Adam, at that moment, Adam began to die physically, and immediately he died spiritually. His nature was changed, and it is that sinful and depraved nature that is passed to all men by Adam. And I've already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to kind of drive this point home. The root sin in the fall was really usurpation or insubordination. It was that they wanted to be as God. So if you look at the, the language there, when it's called this tree, which is really interesting to me. I was walking down the elementary hallway the other day, and one of our first grade teachers, Miss Polly H., she said, this, these kids have some questions. We're studying about the Garden of Eden, and they've got some questions. So they wanted to know exactly all about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what it was and what kind of fruit it was and what it did and all that kind of stuff. And then, then they want to know, and there's another tree, and it was called the Tree of Life. So if you ate that, would you live forever? Can we go find the tree? Because I would like to find the tree so that we could live forever. And, you know, they, they had great questions. <laughs> and those things are mysterious. But uh, the language where it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that same phrase is used throughout the Old Testament in different places, and it's really interesting. In, in 1 Kings 3, 9, Solomon prays for the knowledge of good and evil. He prays for that because he's going to be a ruler. And what it really means is the ability to decide what is right and wrong, the ability to choose for oneself the right way, the right path. That's really what it means. So not a bad thing to pray for as a king. He wanted to know 
um, to, he could make the right decisions. In Deuteronomy 139, it says that little children don't have this ability yet. They don't really know. You know what, there's a reason why little children have parents. Did you know that? Because if they made all their own decisions, we'd be in big trouble. Would they ever eat their vegetables? No. Uh, would they ever do, you know, would they always be not? No. They're, they're, they don't, they cannot make those decisions for themselves. They have to have someone else to guide them and make those decisions. So Deuteronomy tells us that little children don't have this ability yet. And in 2 Samuel, I'm sorry uh, for those who are older here today, but really what it says is old people begin to lose this. They begin to lose the really, the, he, he says there that uh, he has lost the ability to see uh, the right way to go and the right path to go in, in old, old age. So, so that, that concept, so really what you have here is Satan telling Eve, instead of God determining what's good and evil, you can determine what's good and evil. You will have the knowledge and you will be able to determine what's good and evil in your own, in your own mind, in your own way. You get to make the decisions, not God. Uh, and which is really interesting to me because our, our theme verse for our school this year is Romans 12, 9. And it says, talks about genuine love, love being without dissimulation. And then it says, abhor evil and, and do good. Well, the, really the, the lesson there is that there's an objective good and an objective evil. And those things are outside of ourself. That is not something that we get to determine. God determines what is good and what is evil. And, and we must obey. And so the root sin of the, of the fall was that man wanted to make those decisions for himself. Now back to our text in Romans chapter 5. Uh, if we go back to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, what Paul, uh, what Paul is really doing here is giving us an exposition of what happened in Genesis in Genesis, uh, I mean, in Romans 5, 12, whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. All men fell into a state of sin with Adam. So that's what we call the ruin. That's the ruin of mankind is that Adam sinned and because of that we inherit a sinful nature from him. So there's a lot of consequences to that fall. One of them is, is that it means that man is in rebellion against God. So when you're born in a natural state, apart from the grace of God in your life, you're a rebel to God. You are uh, a sinner by nature and will soon be by action um, very quickly in your life because of that nature. So you're in rebellion against God. Uh, Romans chapter 3, we could read um, a lot in Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to do that, but... That, that is the position of man, and in that state of rebellion, and this one's the hard concept for us to understand, everything that man does is sin. Uh, if you do, don't do something to the glory of God, it's sinful, so your motive even matters. And this is the example that I'll give. If you were to give a lot of your money to buy food and clothes for poor people in a third world country, we would say, that's a good thing that you did. But it could be sin, because if you didn't do it out of the right motives and from a right a position of the heart then it would be sinful to do that everything that is apart from faith is sin romans 14 23 tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin romans 7 18 for i know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good i find not so we see that anything that is is bad in our life is due to Anything that is sinful is due to our own sinful nature, and any good that we have in me must come from outside. It must be uh, what has been called an alien righteousness. Alien just means outside of myself. So anything good that I do, it must be the Spirit of God doing that in me because we are fallen creatures. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6. So man is fallen and man is unable to submit to God. In and of ourselves, what we mean by that is that in and of ourselves, we're unable to recover ourselves from this fall. So there's nothing that we can do naturally without the Spirit of God acting to recover ourselves from this fall. We cannot pay the price that is required to redeem ourselves, and we can't even come to God because of this sinful nature. Um, I shared this quote, um, C.H. Spurgeon, I love it. It says, sin is sovereign till sovereign grace dethrones it. That, and what, what he's really saying there is, is what the Apostle Paul calls us being slaves to sin. 
Sin is our master until we are broken free from that by the grace of God. So sin is sovereign till sovereign grace dethrones it. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That is 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then the last part on this, and I'm, I'm going very quickly, is that because of this rebellion against God and because of our sin, both inherited and in action, we deserve eternal punishment. That's, that's the, the hard truth. The deserved end of every rebel against God and every sinner against a holy God is a sinner's hell. And we don't hear a lot about that anymore. A lot of people don't preach on that anymore. It's, that's not a popular subject. But John 3.36 said, The wrath of God abides on unbelievers. And the reality of hell is God's clear indictment against our guilt as fallen human beings. Our rebellion is such that it deserves eternal punishment. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of of his power also in Matthew 25 and these shall go away verse 46 and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous unto life eternal so it's a very hard part of the message but we need to understand that there was a ruin that happened what an important moment it was when when that when Adam partook of that fruit the whole human race fell into sin and so that's, that's not a really uh, happy ending to a story. But the story's not over. So what we're really talking about this morning is the history of redemption. And that story is not over. So that's just the first part. I said we're going to talk about ruin and redemption. So now we get to the better part of the story, which is redemption. So the second half is about how we are redeemed. And so we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Please turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So we're going to talk about redemption, and we're going to do it by unpacking this verse here in, in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. So one of the first things that we must do to understand redemption is to understand who is this Christ. So our, our, our first point under redemption is, who is this Christ? It says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sin. So who is this Christ? Well, I'm not going to turn there, but you're very familiar with John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, and in the first few verses there. It says that in the beginning, in the beginning of all things, when all things were created that the Word, which is Jesus Christ, the Word was with God, and then there's a very important phrase next, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. He is a, an equal part of the Trinity. So when we, when we hear uh, in Peter where he says, for Christ hath also once suffered, suffered for sins, it is the very God who is suffering for sins. For Christ hath also once suffered for sins. Christ is God. But then amazingly, and we will turn here to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. This is, it's really hard to comprehend, but this is one of the best passages in scripture for us to go to, to understand the enormity of the condescension that took place for Christ to even come into this world. So here we find in John 1 that he is God, not only that, that it says that there was not anything made that was made without him. So he is the creator God. And then we find in Philippians 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's hard for us to really even imagine that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, became a man. And not only that, he became obedient unto death. So Jesus Christ, the the creator of all things, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mediator, the only mediator between God and man, who was sent by the Father to accomplish His will and His purposes. He's the only begotten Son of the Father, the eternal Son of God, the one in whom the Father is well pleased, the chosen one of Israel, the Holy One, He's called, fully God and fully man, yet He comes. And then this is the hard part for us to understand. Our second point is, isn't it amazing back in our text that it says, for this Christ, for Christ also has once suffered. So this Christ suffered. We would imagine that if the very creator of the universe came down into creation, that he would be treated as a king and that he would rule and reign and that there would be no suffering. There would be no suffering. And yet, how can this be that Christ suffered? The Bible speaks a lot about the sufferings and the grief and the sorrows of the life of Jesus Christ. So I want to make this clear. When we say this, um, we're going to get to a place where we talk about the cross. But in this, we're just saying, isn't it amazing that Christ suffered? His life was a life of sorrow and grief. And and he suffered throughout his time here uh, on the earth. Isaiah 53, 1 through 4. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. How can that be? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You see, the reason why that we can read that is because redemption has a price. And the price of redemption, there must be punishment. There must be suffering. There must be suffering. So Hebrews chapter 9, let's, let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews nine twenty two says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So suffering is going to be part of the equation if we are to be recovered from the ruin that we just heard about uh, that took place in Adam. There must be the shedding of blood. Acts 20, 28. Acts 20 and verse 28. And in this one, especially for those of us who are in the ministry, this one will step on your toes a little bit. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. And then the last phrase is what we really want, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So there's a cost. There's a price that must be paid for redemption. Uh, God is a holy God, and therefore... He won't just excuse sin. He can't just say, well, Adam didn't really mean it, and so therefore I'm just going to overlook it, and we can sweep that under the rug and we can move on. No, there's a price that must be paid. We see that Christ, in in Hebrews 2, 9, this Jesus, this Christ, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but will be crowned with glory and honor. That, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So Christ suffered. Now, there's a key word there. So, so far we've seen who Christ is. That's our first point under redemption. Secondly, that Christ suffered. It's hard for us to even imagine that. But three, there is a, a pinnacle of this suffering that takes place that is extremely important. So back to our text, uh, back to our text where... He says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sin. So Peter is drawing our attention to a singular event, a one-time occasion. He suffered once 
for sin. Peter is bringing our minds to the very pinnacle, the single most important and defining moment in the history of all things. There was a moment in time. It really happened, by the way. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just a story. Jesus literally came to the earth. He literally lived a human life, and there came a point when it was time. You know, when we, when we studied through the Gospel of John, you remember I kept telling you, Jesus kept saying what? My time has not come. It is not my time yet. My time has not come. And then finally, what did he tell the apostles? My time has come. And so Peter is drawing our attention to this time, this moment, this, this one place in history. And as we all know from reading the accounts recorded for us in the gospel, the culmination of all this suffering occurs on the cross of Calvary with the death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, he dies a death and, and had no sin in him. He's righteous, and yet he dies um, a horrible death for all of us. And we define this moment as one of the very deepest depths of suffering that could happen. And words cannot even describe or do justice to the importance of this singular event that Peter is describing, where redemption was accomplished for us. And even if we were to dive into, and and I think there is, I'm not making light of this, I think it's good for us to understand, but even if we were to study in detail the science of the crucifixion, uh, if you've ever heard that, it, it's difficult to even hear. Uh, it was a very brutal and torturous way to die. But even if we were to dive into that and see all the physical things that would have happened to someone who was being crucified, you know that a lot of people were crucified. It wasn't just Christ. Even with Christ, there were two others. But yet, to illustrate that there was much more suffering than just the physical suffering that Christ went through in that moment, we have to hear the words that, cross, that Christ spoke from the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You want to know suffering? That was suffering. That because of my sin, not because of anything he had done, God literally had to turn his face away from his son. And, and to really make that sink in, we have to go back before time began. Did you know that the Trinity, there's never a beginning to the Trinity? That they've always been, and they've always been in perfect harmony between the persons in the Trinity. We, we believe in one God with three persons, and there's perfect unity in that Trinity. And so for, for us to say that God turned his face from his son, that's, that's the ultimate level of suffering. It's much more than just the physical suffering that took place. This one sacrifice for sin for all. And it will never be required again. Substitutionary atonement. Christ was made sin that I might have his righteousness. So the physical parts of this, while yet they were intense, it was really more about, can you imagine all the sins of all the elect placed on one man at one time? Just the the pressure that would be from that as he took on the sin of all of God's chosen people. And this was one sacrifice for all. He suffered once for sin, happened in a moment of time when Christ perished because of the sins of his people, making himself the atonement for the sins of his people. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, because the significance of having one sacrifice for all, we probably don't understand as well as the people in this time would have because they were familiar with the law service. Hebrews 7, 27, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once when he offered himself up. So we go back to the Old Testament, and and we see in this law service, if you go back and read through that, it's amazing how much that had to be done, right? I mean, it there was a particular way that everything had to be done. It had to be made. That like I think um, Brother Jeff mentioned recently about the tabernacle. Just go read about that. I mean, it just chapter after chapter after chapter. Everything had to be done in a very specific way. And then everything had to be organized in the right way. And then at a certain times, the priest had to go in and they had to make atonement over and over and over again. And the truth is, none of those sacrifices ever atoned for one single sin. They were just pointing towards this moment. So for the whole Old Testament, we're... We're watching sacrifice, all the blood that was shed of all those animals. They're all pointing towards the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and they're pointing to it. And now we are looking back. 
And did you know there's a reason why that we don't have to have an altar in this church and that we don't have to bring a lamb and, and, and slaughter it for, for the sins of the people is because that, that sacrifice has already happened. It's already taken place in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9, 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters in the holy place every year with blood of others. Or Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and this is really important, sat down on the right hand of God. And you know what that means to me? That means mission accomplished. If there was still work to do, Christ wouldn't be seated at the right hand of God. If he was still trying to save everybody, then he wouldn't be seated. But the work is complete. The work of redemption is complete. Uh, Brother Charles Walker one time preached a sermon about that, and he, they titled the message, There's a Chair in Heaven. Aren't you glad that there's a chair in heaven? That Jesus was able to say, My work is finished. What did Christ say on the cross? The work has been started. No. He said, It is finished. Once for all, the work of redemption was accomplished. You know, that's, that's the biggest problem with a lot of theology today is that uh, they really don't believe in the finished work of redemption in Jesus Christ, that it's a, it's a finished work. He paid for the sins of his people, and he gets what he pays for. So what a difference from the law service of the Old Testament when time and time again the priest had to atone for the sins of the people, but the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were just pointing towards this one uh, that he says is a once, he suffered once for sin. And Peter backs the truth of all of that concept with that one word, once. And yet, although it's a singular event and a suffering once, we're, we're talking about it as one single event, um, that can kind of make it oversimplified in our mind as well. Yes, it's one event. Yes, it was one suffering for sin. But this suffering was of such a nature and such an extreme depth and breadth of suffering that it satisfied the wrath of a holy God and accomplished in this one moment in all of history the price for redeeming all of the chosen people of God. It accomplished all of his purposes in redemption and all that he intended in sending his only son into the world. One sacrifice for all. That's amazing, isn't it? That, that in that moment, the wrath of God for the sins of all of those people was satisfied. One sacrifice for sins forever. The efficacy of this great sacrifice never wanes or weakens. It is sufficient forevermore for the sins of all of God's elect. So yes, it's one event, but what an event. What, what a sacrifice was made for the sins of God's people. Now, next, there, go back to our text. There in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, there's another phrase that's also important about this sacrifice that's made. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust the just for the unjust how amazing to consider this high price that was required to ransom the people of god see not just any sacrifice would do and even in the old testament they it points towards this because you know you couldn't just go out to your flock and say well you know that little wounded one over there it's not going to do me any good anyway so i need to i need to get that one and take him to be sacrificed no it had to be the best right it had to be the best well, what a high price was required to ransom the people of God. Sinless, without a sin nature or any transgression of the law of God, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's, Jesus Christ was sinless. So he suffered for our sins, not for his own sins. He was the just for the unjust. And that was the price that must be paid. So the question then becomes, for who would you be willing to lay down your life? Who would you, it was, it was so interesting, before I preached this sermon up at um, Olive Branch, the pastor the night before had said, you know, this makes me think about 
that, you know, who in my life would I be willing to die for? And I said, oh, he's, he's beating me to the punch. I've got that in my notes for tomorrow night. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not, but for who would you be willing to die? You probably have a list in, in your mind if you've ever thought about it before. The list is probably very small, probably. But what we would hope, I think we would hope that we would be willing to die for our families. I think we would, especially for those of us who are men. I, I hope we would be willing to sacrifice our life for our, our wives and our children, and we would hope that we would do that. We might even hope that if the time ever came and we needed to, that we would rise up like the greatest generation did and be willing to die for our country and, and for our freedoms and for our countrymen, that we would be willing to sacrifice our life for that. I, I hope we would. But what about for your enemy? I want you to think in your mind right now for the person who just is probably the, the worst person in the world to you. You know, that just you think about somebody who just rubs you the wrong way. Maybe there's somebody who, you know, just doesn't like you or whatever. The, 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 the enemy that is the worst to you, you think about that person. Would you lay down your life for that person? Would you lay down your life for someone who is not your friend but instead your enemy? Someone who is against you? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can we even comprehend a love like this Christ died for us when we were we have to remember back to the very beginning of the message we're rebels against God we were not lovable we were not someone who was to be desired and and oh Christ he's willing to pay a high price because there's a, a really good product you know a lot of times if we want something really bad we'll, we'll be willing to sacrifice a lot for it that's not the case here the case is is that we were rebels we were enemies against God and yet still he was willing to pay the price to redeem us through great suffering. If we believe we have something to bring, we haven't read our Bible. We have nothing to bring. We are lost, and we are rebels against God, and we are sinners. And yet, even in that, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the next part of our text, when we go back to 1 Peter 3.18, so it was the just for the unjust, is that this was suffering with a purpose suffering with a purpose christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god so this suffering was was not for just no reason there was a purpose in it and the purpose was to reconcile us to god to redeem us to god the person the purpose can be summed up in that phrase from our text that he might bring us to God. We were lost and separated from God, and, and fellowship must be restored. And the price for that was uh, the work of Christ on the cross in taking our sins and, and uh, bearing the punishment for them. So, to truly understand the purpose of reconciliation in our text, we have to, like we said, go back and think about the ruin of mankind in the fall. We are not seekers of God. Did you know that? We are not seekers of God. In our fallen state, there's no one that seeks God. There's no one that is coming after God. Uh, God instead must reach down and get you. Uh, you are not seeking after God. This suffering is suffering with a purpose because he is to reconcile us to God. It was the purpose, the counsel, the determination of God to send his son to be the propitiation for our sins to reconcile us to himself. So that reconciliation, um, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. <clears throat> and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So God reconciled his people to himself through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ for sin, we are reconciled to God. So how exactly does that take place? I've kind of already alluded to it, but we really want to unpack that just a little bit. It's very important for us to understand. Well, how that actually takes place is that, so how are we reconciled to God? Well, like we said, we have a big problem. Uh, the ruin of mankind is a big problem. We have, we have sin. We have a sin nature, and we have, we have actively sinned against God, and those sins have to be paid for for us to be reconciled. Well, the way that that took place was that our sin 
was imputed to Christ, and he took that to the cross and took our punishment for that sin. And then on top of that, his righteousness was imputed to me, so it's though I, as if I never sinned and I have the righteousness of Christ. If you can't rejoice over that this morning, then you don't know the Lord. <laughs> and, and the Holy Spirit's going to have to work on your heart. Because that, that's the greatest story that's ever been told. That's the greatest news that we could ever tell anyone, is that Christ, our sin was laid on Christ. He paid the price for that, and his righteousness was given to us freely. That's how that reconciliation took place. And I love to share this when I talk about redemption. Uh, I, I stole this from somebody, but I think it's really, really good. It's more than a rescue. It's not just a rescue. Because here's what a rescue would be. Let's say that uh, one, of, one of the little children here in the church fell into a river, and they're about to drown. It's a raging river, and they fall in the river. The fire department has to come out, and they, they spare no expense, and they go out and they rescue them from the river, and they put them on solid ground, and then what happens after that? They're going to shake your hand and say, we're glad you're saved, and they're going to go away, right? That's it. They saved you. That's a rescue. They rescued you, and they put you on dry ground. They got you in a good place, and then, see you. You're on your own. That's not what happened in redemption because not only are we saved, but then we're made part of the family. <laughs> we're brought in. No, we're not just rescued. We're also adopted, and that adoption is even more than what we understand as adoption. Because if, if Beck and I wanted to adopt some children, we could do that. And I promise you, if we did, we would try to treat them like our own children. We would do everything we could to, to make it exactly like our own, our own daughter, Sydney. But you know, there would be a difference. Even if we didn't treat it that way, there'd be a, if we adopted that child, for that whole child's life, that child would never have the same DNA as myself and her and our real daughter. They'd never have the same DNA. Do you know that it's not like that when we're adopted in the family of God? When we're adopted in the family of God, a process starts at that moment, and we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We start to take on the family likeness. We begin to look like the family. Isn't that amazing? And one day, that work's going to be complete in glorification. We're going to be in the family of God. What an amazing thing that that is. So this is more than just a rescue. John 6, verse 38, when we say this was suffering with a purpose, we go to John chapter 6, verse 38 through 40. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day that was the purpose of christ's suffering that was the purpose of the cross is that he might redeem and that of all that are his he should lose nothing that's a that's an important concept that out of all those uh you know there's the big debate about for whom did christ die well that ought to settle it because it says that of all which he hath given me i should lose nothing so all those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, for all of those, that sacrifice is sufficient and efficient for all those who were chosen uh, in him before the foundation of the world. My rebellion and sin and disobedience demanded punishment from a holy God, and it was the purpose of God that through the suffering of Christ uh, that we would be redeemed. Now, we've already read a little bit in Isaiah and we're going to go back and read in Isaiah 53, pick up where we left off in verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that's... That's what actually took place. That's how this happened is that the, our iniquity was laid on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, 
Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and then a very important phrase here, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. There's purpose in the sacrifice of Christ because in the sacrifice of Christ, God was satisfied. When he saw the travail of, of Christ, he said that that's payment. The payment is made in full. He was satisfied. Uh, what an amazing thing that that is. And that's also how we end our text. There's even more good news in this text, and these two things tie together very closely. So we'll go back to 1 Peter 3 and end our verse says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that purpose, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Very important. There's two really important points in that. The first is that Christ did die a bodily death. He was put to death in the flesh. It's hard for us to even consider, but it's, it was actually very quickly after the death of Christ became a heresy very fast that Christ really didn't have a human body, and, and so therefore he wasn't really put to death. Christ died a human death. Uh, we, we see this in this text. He says that he was put to death in the flesh. Christ had a real human body, and he died a real human death. He's put to death in the flesh. The creator of the universe was put to death in a human body. It's an important, hard but important detail for us to recognize that a sacrifice must be made. So he was put to death in the flesh. But I'm glad the verse doesn't end there. And you should be too. Because the verse doesn't end there. Instead it says that Christ was put to death for our sins. He died a body. His, his fleshly body died. Put to death in the flesh. But quickened by the spirit. Because that wasn't the end of the story. Let's go to Corinthians chapter 15. Because it's really important that Christ rose. We've talked a lot about his redemption, and that's important. But if he hadn't come out of the grave, that would have been a sign that that redemption was not. So I told you these two things are linked. When we read there in Isaiah that it says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The way that we know that God was satisfied is that on the third day, Jesus came out of the tomb. And because of that, we know that sacrifice was accepted. That it was paid in full, and God was satisfied. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Does that sound important to you? If Christ doesn't come out of the grave, what that's a signal of is that the sacrifice was not accepted. And so therefore, you are yet in your sins. That price still must be paid, and it will be paid by you. So it's very important that Christ came from the tomb. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, and by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That one verse can sum up this entire message. Did you catch that? We talked about two really important moments, right? One, we all died in Adam. But praise the Lord, in Christ we all live. We all live and don't just live, but we live forever. Our sin has been paid for. There's been reconciliation made. We have returned fellowship with God the Father. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus fully completed everything that was needed to bring us to God 
and give us eternal life with him. And that includes coming out of the grave to give us confident expectation that one day we will rise as well. So now, I didn't do this in this meeting, but as I was thinking about it this morning, it kind of came to mind that there's one more important moment that's going to take place because of Christ's sacrifice. So we've already looked at two really important moments. One was the fall in Adam. There was a moment when that that really happened in time. There's another moment when Christ paid the sacrifice so that we could live with him forever in heaven. Well, there's coming another moment. Did you know that? There's coming a really important moment. One day there's a trumpet's going to sound. All of this is going to be over, and we don't have to fight sin anymore. It's over. He's going to wrap all of this up, and he's coming again. What a moment. What a moment that Christ purchased with his own blood that we get to experience, that he will return. It won't be like it was last time. You remember we read in Philippians where it said he humbled himself and he came in the form of a servant. He's not coming in the form of a servant. He's coming as a conquering king. And it says later on in that same chapter, it says that every knee will bow. We will be vindicated for our faith because our faith is in, in something that's real. So we will be vindicated. All those who are the enemies of God right now and who say that religion is just a crutch for the weak-minded, they're going to have to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was the truth. And every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, I'm not going to turn there, uh, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we read that one day, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant. I want you to understand what's going to happen. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye, one day, the trump's going to sound, and, and Christ is going to return, and all those who are alive and remain, you know, I've thought about it selfishly before. Man, I'd, I'd really like for that to happen, <laughs> you know, uh, for multiple reasons. But wouldn't that be awesome if you were one of the ones that are alive and remain when that happens? And then the trump sounds, and we get to witness that we're not going to hinder those that, that are in the, the graves are going to burst open. There, there's a song I listen to all the time. It says, um, Graves all bursting, saints all shouting, heavenly beauty all around. Can you imagine that scene? As all the graves of all the people, and and they rise from the dead. And then it says we would be called up to meet him in the air. And this is the sweetest part of the deal, right? All that would be amazing to see. But then what does he say at the end? So shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, the way that we can be with the Lord is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without that, you cannot be in his presence. You cannot be, uh, we cannot have restored fellowship with God while we're yet in our sin. So it's because of the sacrifice of the Lord that we are able to say we will be forever with him. So as you ponder the things that we've heard this morning, where are you in your walk with the Lord? Have you ever publicly professed faith in Christ? Have you ever repented of your sins in a public way and said, I want to repent of my sins, I want to turn from those things, and I want to follow Jesus Christ? I believe what, what I heard this morning, I believe that Christ died for my sins and that he rose from the grave, and because of that, one day I'm going to live with him. Well, what you should do is you should publicly profess that before men. You should say, I believe in Christ, and I want to repent of my sins, and then you should follow him in baptism. That's what the answer of a clear conscience before God is, is to follow him in baptism, be baptized, and join with his people in serving him in the local church. So I pray you will do that today. And for those of us who are following him, that we'll ever keep the cross before our eyes and try to live for him every single day.